Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Picky Battles podcast. My name is Carl Rylett and today I'll be continuing the story of the First World War. So far on this series on World War I, I've looked at the origins of the war and also the first years, 1914 to 1916. Today we turn to 1917 and the Russian Revolution. As the year 1917 dawned, Europe had been at war for two and a half years, and pressures on the home fronts were becoming intolerable. Everywhere there were shortages of food, fuel and raw materials for industry, mostly due to the insatiable demands of the military, but made worse for the central powers by the Allied blockade. Most important for the public mood were the shortages of food, which sapped strength and support for the war. Peasants could still hoard their stocks and resort to the barter economy, so the worst sufferers were the working and lower middle classes in the cities, and strikes and bread riots became endemic throughout Central and Eastern Europe. In France and Britain, war weariness was also growing. In both countries, socialists, whose international loyalties had in the first phase of the war been subsumed by patriotic fervour, were now arguing for a compromised peace. But they were still in the minority, and political discourse was mainly directed at the conduct of the war. In France, the heavy casualties at the Battle of Verdun in 1916 were blamed on General Joffre, who was replaced as Commander-in-Chief by Robert Nivelle. In Britain, popular discontent found its target in the administration of Prime Minister Herbert Asquith. In December 1916, he was replaced by David Lloyd George, who had the charisma of a natural war leader and was far more energetic than his predecessor. One advantage the British enjoyed was support from across their vast empire. About 400,000 men served in the Canadian Expeditionary Force, mainly on the Western Front. Hundreds of thousands also came from Australia and New Zealand, and the Australian Prime Minister promised to support the mother country, quote, to the last man and last shilling, end quote. Many South Africans and Indians also fought alongside the British in the battlefields of Europe. Meanwhile, in Austro-Hungary, the 86-year-old Emperor Franz Josef passed away on the 21st of November, 1916, His funeral was a great demonstration of Habsburg pomp, 
but it could not distract from the traumatic effect of his loss. For all his mistakes, Franz Josef had gained through his longevity and the omnipresence of his image throughout his monarchy, an authority that was based on familiarity and custom. Yet this authority was largely fixed to his person alone. His successor, Karl I, did not have the same authority, nor his predecessor's experience of government. Karl set about a course of seeking peace abroad and returning to constitutional rule at home, and sent out secret feeders to the French, through his brother-in-law, Prince Sixtus of Bourbon-Parma. In Germany, the winter of 1916-1917, later known as the Turnip Winter, marked one of the harshest periods in wartime Germany. Poor autumn weather led to a poor potato harvest, and much of the produce that was shipped to German cities rotted. Germany's massive military recruitment played a direct role in this, as all areas of the economy suffered from lack of manpower, including agriculture. The loss of the potato crop forced the German population to subsist on turnips as an alternative. Hindenburg and Ludendorff effectively took over control of the country, as well as the military. They created a supreme war office to control both industry and labour. In Belgium, German occupation became increasingly oppressive. Belgians were required to pay heavy taxes in order to finance the German war effort. The Germans introduced compulsory labour and more than 120,000 Belgian men were sent to work in Germany. These deportations were another public relations disaster for the Germans and their reputation for barbarity was further reinforced. This was particularly damaging in the United States, where popular outrage undermined President Woodrow Wilson's efforts to find an American negotiated peace. The Germans and Austrians also used military prisoners for labour. At first, prisoners languished in overcrowded prison camps, where in 1915 a typhus epidemic raged but later they began to be employed on state land reclamation or railway projects and then allocated to the iron industry or mines, where they quickly became a large section of the labour force. It was in agriculture that military prisoners were most numerous and proved invaluable. The men allocated to peasant farmers could count themselves fortunate. Captives sent to work in industrial areas were poorly paid, badly fed and at risk of epidemic disease. The worst fate was for prisoners, retained by the armies for labour directly behind the line, where conditions were appalling. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Although the war created political instability throughout Europe, the consequences were most profound in Russia, where they eventually led to revolution. The Russian Empire was the largest and most populous of the combatants, but its rulers were unable to fully exploit their superior resources. Lack of money meant a restriction on the size of the army. An erratic and uneven system of exemptions and deferments allowed many to escape conscription, which was, in any case, unable to reach into every corner of the vast empire. Also, a more determined effort at mobilisation risked resistance, as occurred in the Central Asian Revolt of 1916, when anti-Russian uprising occurred among the Muslim inhabitants of Turkestan. Military courts were established in district cities and imposed death sentences towards all the rebels who took part in the uprising. What then ensued was a campaign of collective massacre and expulsion of local Kyrgyz civilians and insurgents by Tsarist forces. Russian settlers also participated in the killings, as revenge for the abuses they suffered from the insurgents. Estimates that the total number of deaths vary from 40,000 to 270,000. In addition to those killed outright, tens of thousands of men, women and children died while trying to escape over treacherous mountain passes into China. In the first two years of the war, the Russian army suffered from a shortage of artillery, guns, shells and bullets, although the industry was able to massively increase its capacity, so that by the end of 1916 they were at least as well provisioned as their adversaries. Allied help also began to arrive by way of newly built or expanded railway lines to the White Sea and Pacific ports. On the other hand, a growing problem was a shortage of officers, which became progressively worse as high casualty rates caused them to be replaced by inexperienced men, who were often as disaffected as the soldiers they were supposed to lead. Difficulties of supply and support services over great distances, poor roads and railways also limited the number of troops who could be put into the front lines when and where they were needed. In August 1915, the centre political parties of Russia, which held just over half of the seats in the Duma, formed the so-called Progressive Bloc and published a reform programme which included full citizenship for peasants, an end to all discrimination, on ethnic or religious grounds, an amnesty for political prisoners and a guarantee of workers' rights. Some ministers supported the programme and serious negotiations began. 
The Tsar, Nicholas II, however, perceiving the programme as a threat to his authority, decided otherwise. He adjourned the Duma, dismissed the ministers who had supported the Progressive Bloc and took personal control of the army. As it happened, the Russian army performed better in 1916, but nevertheless, Nicholas's military command left him to neglect issues at home. The public image of the royal family was negatively affected by the presence of Grigory Rasputin, a bearded mystic and self-proclaimed holy man who persuaded Empress Alexandra, the wife of Nicholas, that he could heal the imperial couple's only son, Alexei, who suffered from haemophilia. The high point of Rasputin's power was in 1915, when Nicholas II left St. Petersburg to oversee the Russian military. But as Russian defeats mounted during the war, both Rasputin and Alexandra became increasingly unpopular. In the early morning of the 30th of December, 1916, Rasputin was assassinated by a group of conservative noblemen who opposed his influence. Although the lack of military success led to widespread war weariness, the main causes of the revolution in 1917 were economic. Russia had the lowest agricultural productivity in all of Europe on the eve of war. The war itself further increased the threat of famine by depriving the country of its agricultural workers. The longer the conflict lasted, the more the food supply deteriorated, which further heightened social tensions. The first two months of 1917 saw a surge of strikes and protests in cities across the empire. The immediate spark was provided by protests in the capital, renamed Petrograd in 1914, over bread shortages. On the morning of Thursday, the 8th of March, or 23rd of February, according to the old Julian calendar that was replaced by the Bolsheviks in 1918, more than 7,000 female workers from the city's textile plants downed tools to protest about the inadequate food provisions. As they marched through the streets, they were joined by other workers flooding out of nearby factories, swelling the numbers to at least 80,000 protesters. At first, the authorities saw no great cause for concern, but the demonstrations continued for another two days and began to take a political turn, and placards appeared calling for an end to the war and criticising the Tsarist regime and Nicholas II himself. Nicholas, entirely unsympathetic to his people's call for bread and peace, ordered the demonstrations to be ended immediately, with force if necessary. On the morning of Sunday, the 11th of March, troops loyal to the Tsar opened fire on the crowds of protesters, killing dozens of them. However, over the course of the day, more and more soldiers refused to shoot unarmed protesters and abandoned their loyalty to the regime. Workers and rebellious soldiers marched to the city's prisons and released the inmates before raiding police stations. As the authorities lost control of the capital, Nicholas considered the use of the military, but it was too late. His ministers resigned and fled, and Nicholas was eventually persuaded to abdicate, ending the Romanov dynasty and the thousand-year-old monarchy of Russia.
as the old order collapsed amid joyous celebrations of crowds in Petrograd, Moscow and other cities, members of the Duma set up what became known as the Provisional Government, which was dominated by liberal and far-right politicians striving for political reform. At the same time, a rival power emerged in the form of the local Soviets, led by parties of the far left. In the period which followed, the Provisional Government and the Petrograd Soviet recognised each other's roles as government and grassroots pressure groups, respectively, although they held fundamentally different views on the future direction of the revolution. One of the differences was the Provisional Government's commitment to continue the war and their decision to postpone the promised land reforms until a war could be concluded. In the summer of 1917, Russian troops attacked the Austro-Hungarian and German forces in Galicia, where Brusilov hoped to repeat his successes of the previous years. After a two-day bombardment, the second Brusilov offensive began well with an attack on the south-west front. When the infantry went over the top on the 1st of July, early results were promising, but then everything started to go wrong. The best and most loyal troops had been chosen as the assault troops, while the follow-up and reserve formations were far less committed. In fact, when it came to moving forward, many regiments simply refused. The attack petered out, and further planned attacks were either cancelled or abandoned. Then, when the Austro-Hungarians launched a counter-offensive on the 19th of July, the Russians broke and retreated in chaos. The majority of Russian soldiers were simply no longer willing to fight, eager to get back to their own villages and to participate in the handout of land promised by the Soviets. The Germans took full advantage of the chaos in the Russian ranks. They targeted the port of Riga in Latvia, situated at the mouth of the river Davina, also known as the Daugava, on the Baltic coast. On the 1st of September, they fired hundreds of thousands of shells into the city in just a few hours. The Russian infantry were pounded into submission, abandoning their posts in terror, and Riga was soon overrun by German troops. The Prime Minister of Russia, Alexander Kerensky, a moderate socialist, lost all remaining support from the military after the failed offensives. And six days after the fall of Riga, General Kornilov, who had replaced Brusilov, attempted a coup. However, it quickly collapsed in the face of armed opposition from the Petrograd and Moscow Soviets and passive resistance from the railway and telegraph workers. Kornilov and several other generals were arrested. The main beneficiaries of the failed coup attempt were the Bolsheviks, the most radical of the Soviets. Prime Minister Kerensky had enlisted their help and released their leaders from prison and provided them with arms and ammunition. While the Bolsheviks found their fortunes revived, Kerensky found himself losing support from all sides, from the Conservatives and Liberals and the military leadership and also from the moderate left. He failed to calm the public mood even when long-promised elections to the Constituent Assembly were announced on the 25th of November. As summer gave way to autumn, Russia found itself in an increasingly volatile situation in which the central government was fast losing authority across the country. 
and willing to wait for the promised Constituent Assembly to address the land question, peasants in the countryside began taking measures into their own hands and seizing local estates. Meanwhile, the Germans continued their offensive against Russia and in mid-October launched an operation to seize the Estonian islands at the mouth of the Gulf of Riga, which they successfully completed in just nine days. They were now getting threateningly close to Petrograd. It was then that the leader of the Bolsheviks, Vladimir Lenin, finally chose to make his move, breaking all their remaining links with the provisional government and launching the Second Russian Revolution. The Bolshevik seizure of power and the storming of the Winter Palace, the seat of the provisional government, on the 25th of October, was largely bloodless. Most of the delegates were swiftly arrested, although Kerensky himself managed to escape. Kerensky tried to arouse resistance to the Bolsheviks in the army, but the few units that answered his call were unable to overthrow the well-armed and highly motivated Red Guards. By mid-November, Moscow too had fallen to the Bolsheviks. Lenin was fully aware that the Bolsheviks' grasp on power was tenuous. Asserting his authority throughout the former empire would be no easy task given the vast lands involved. At this point, the core membership of the Bolshevik party was no more than 15,000, although the numbers of supporters was growing quickly. Lenin allowed the promised elections to take place in November, but when the more moderate Socialist Revolutionary Party came out as the big winners, he lost no time in dissolving the assembly in Petrograd after only one day. Lenin also quickly took steps to withdraw Russia from the war, which would allow him to concentrate on dealing with his many internal enemies. At the same time, he expected that war weariness elsewhere in Europe would soon lead to revolution in other combatant nations, paving the way for the pan-European, if not yet global, triumph of Bolshevism. Immediate orders were issued encouraging local negotiations with the Germans and Austro-Hungarians to secure early informal ceasefires, while more formal talks began at Brest-Litovsk on the 2nd of December 1917. My name is Card Rydert and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. Feel free to leave comments on the Facebook page or you can write to me directly at carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net. It's always great to hear from you. Next week I relate the events of the year 1917 more generally talking about the Western Front, a German submarine campaign, and fighting on the Austrian and Italian fronts. I hope you can join me then. Until then, all the best.